Bill Eigel just won an ultra-competitive race for a St. Charles County-based Senate seat, and he's already thinking of how he's going to make his impact in the Missouri Senate. The Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is still on vacation, so filling in for the venerable political reporter, we have our venerable education reporter. Dale Singer. Thank you for joining us. And My pleasure. The winner of, I think, the, the most exciting, combative, and consequential state Senate primary of the last cycle, our guest today. Bill Eigel, glad to be here. And thank you for, for joining us. Um, we're we're you're a newcomer to politics, so this may be an introduction to the Missouri political world. Um, probably not an introduction to the St. Charles County because you've lived there and you've probably inundated that uh, area with with campaign material. But tell us a little bit about yourself, why you decided to get into politics, and anything else we want to know about Bill Eigel. Great, and thank you again for having me this morning. Uh, certainly, this was as you mentioned, this was my first run for public office and my first primary. And uh, before I got involved in politics for the past 10 years, I've been a small business owner out in St. Charles County. I own a little remodeling company out there. And before that, I was in the United States Air Force. I was an aircraft maintenance officer, went overseas, served for seven and a half years. Both my wife and I were in the military and uh, got involved in the political discussion about a year and a half ago. And at that time, we were frustrated with some of the policies that we were seeing. We were seeing massive increases in our health care as a result of the Obamacare initiative. We were seeing uh, more and more government as a result of doing business here in Missouri and doing business in other states around the country. And so we decided we wanted to get involved, and here we are. And I asked you about this in at a Panera in, I think, Cottleville, but... How did the military impact your view of politics? Because we've had people on the show from both parties who had military experience who said it affected them greatly. I'm interested to hear your take on that. Absolutely. Uh, I did go overseas as part of Operation Enduring Freedom, and I think that was very important in my development because I was deployed to a former Soviet country, uh, Turkmenistan, uh, overseas. It, it shares a border with I Iran and Afghanistan. And at the time, the country was being ruled uh, by a tyrant known as the Turkmenbasi. And this was a former Communist Party chairman who basically got government involved in every aspect of the people's lives. And in the process, he ruined the country's currency. He ruined the country's economy. And right now, there are a lot of folks that are looking for a way out of Turkmenistan. And it's because they don't enjoy the same freedoms and liberties that a lot of times, unfortunately, we take for granted here in America. Was there a particular uh, aha type moment that said, Okay, this I, this is going enough. I've got to get involved in politics. Yep, for me it was. Uh, I remember very clearly going out to the mailbox a couple one day a couple years ago and getting my health insurance renewal premium. And in order for my existing plan to comply with Obamacare, the incre increase in premium was seventy percent just for one year. Now we we pay uh, for the employees in our business, but we. Uh, we were sustaining uh, huge increases for our families, for our dependents, and it was a result of the government getting involved in something that I don't think they should be involved in. And so that was a real aha moment where I went home and I talked with my wife, Amanda, and we said, we got to find a way to get involved. And to be fair, I'd, I'd always avoided uh, politics for 
uh, probably the same reason that a lot of other people avoid politics, which is it is a very negative and sometimes cynical world, and you want to try to stay away from it. Unfortunately, it's precisely that kind of ab attitude that prevents positive change from occurring. So for me, that was a wake-up call, and we decided to get involved, and here we are. Before we delve into the policy, which I think is, is the more consequential thing, we do need to dive into the cynical world of politics a little bit, because as I mentioned on the outset, the 23rd District Republican primary, I think, was probably the top primary in the state. There were a couple other ones which were competitive. But this is a situation where you had people with different policy positions. This is a seat that has gone Republican for many years. And it's a feeling that even though it's less Republican than the second senatorial district in West St. Charles County, there is a feeling that winning this primary is tantamount to election. So you had yourself, State Representative Ann Zare, who had spent eight years in the Missouri legislature, as well as Wentzville Municipal Judge Mike Carter, who had run for lieutenant governor a couple of times, but, you know, has a robocalling, is well known, ended up getting 20 percent of the vote. The real race was between you and Representative Zare. Tell me a little bit about what you felt the campaign was like, because it seemed like you all were in a pretty big pressure cooker, so to speak. Well, absolutely. And before I say anything else, I have to thank both of them. Uh, running for office is an incredible endeavor. It's an incredible sacrifice. It takes an incredible toll, not just on the candidate, but on the family members as well. And ultimately, even though you're right, there were a tremendous number of policy differences, all of us wanted the same thing. Uh, we wanted a vibrant, growing economy in Missouri. We wanted the best for St. Charles County. Uh, the question was, of course, how do we get there? And we had some pretty significant differences on uh, when it came to tax reform, when it came to labor reform, when it came to uh, the proper role of government. There were some significant differences, and I think that's what led to a, such a robust conversation out in St. Charles County. And ultimately, I think that uh, even though it was a tough race, even though it was a close race, the, the voters in St. Charles County voted to go with someone that was not a part of, you know, what got us here today. Uh, it was not a part of the, the establishment, was not a part of why we're still facing the same problems over and over. Now, you won by a very narrow margin. And I think one of the reasons it was competitive was, first of all, labor unions, including national labor unions, got behind Zaire's campaign. I remember listening to a clip of Richard Trumka of the AFL-CIO talking with Joe Manis about how important it was for Zaire to win. There were some donors who are in favor of right to work who helped you. The Humphreys uh, family, I think, donated some money to you. Um, it, it kind of almost became a mini referendum on that issue. Uh, is that fair to say, or was it broader than that? I think that that issue got a lot of the spotlight. You know, I'm certainly I'm a favor fav, in favor of labor reform. I'm in favor of right to work, and that was a clear contrast. Uh, I think with both of my opponents actually. And yes, there were outside groups supporting this race on both sides that were trying to have this discussion. And really, you know, that was a, an important discussion, I think, for St. Charles County to have. Now, I, here's the reason why I think that mattered so much. I'm going to play a clip now of your soon-to-be predecessor, uh, former Senate President Pro Tem Tom Dempsey. He resigned, I think, a little over around a year ago. And he voted against right to work when it came into the Senate. This was his rationale why. Based on conversations I've had with people who wanted to bring projects in the state of Missouri, it has been a factor in some decisions that have been made and not decisions that were not in our favor. Um, so I can't deny that right to work is a factor. Um, I don't think it, it's the be all end all factor that needs to change for Missouri to be a leader in the region or in the nation. And that's where, and and also it's a, it's a difficult issue for 
you know, me in my district and that I represent. Because um, your district has a lot of union people in it, correct? Right. And these are people that I have known my entire life, that I knew before I ever thought about entering the legislature, and that I'll know long after I leave the legislature. So that's going to be the reality for you, too. Even though you won, there are definitely a lot of people in your district who are going to disagree with you on this issue. So what's kind of your response to not only that reality, but to your soon-to-be predecessor's comments? Well, actually, I've, I've talked to Tom since the, the primary, and he said almost exactly the same thing to me in person that he said in that clip right there. And, and he's right um, he, when he talks about we need right to work. I, I believe that having economic freedom is something that will attract business from around the country. But he's also right when he says that that's not all we need. It, it's not a single-shot deal where one thing can help everything. We need tax reform. We need ethics reform. We need uh, spending reform. So it's it's a multiple uh, it's a group of things. Uh, right to work is one of them. Obviously, you can look at right to work as, as a business person. What what else in the in your business experience do you think prepares you for this job? Well, there's a, there's a huge difference between running a small business and serving in government. And the biggest difference is the motivation to run an organization as efficiently as possible is far more present in a private organization than it is in government. And when we talk about the growth of government, because our spending has gone up every single year uh, for many years now, uh, being able to find efficiencies in the system is a skill set that I've been practicing and honing for the past 10 years. So I absolutely think that uh, experience in the private sector, experience making the most of the dollars that are going into an organization, particularly government, is a fundamental skill set that uh, I hope to uh, start some good conversations in Jefferson City. Can you run government like you run a business? I mean, we hear people who are running for office that don't have political experience before say that all the time, and other people say, well, they're, they're really two di- fundamentally different kinds of organizations. So what? how can you run a, a government like a business, and how can government not be run like a business? Well, uh, you can run it like a business because in business, you're always looking for more efficiencies. And I think that Republican or Democrat, everybody wants their tax dollars to be spent as efficiently and as 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 well as possible. We want our tax dollars to go to the programs where we have the most need. We want our programs to support the people that have the most need. And having a business uh, resume allows an individual to, I think, do a good job of identifying where efficiencies can be made, where we can move dollars around to get to the people that were intended to, to, to get the assistance the most. Uh, it is different. And in fact, when I was in the Air Force, of course, that is a, a government agency as well. And I've, I've seen the system where uh, money is not necessarily the problem as far as revenue sources, but translating that into accomplishing a mission. So the government is accomplishing a mission as well, just like the military is. And having that business acumen, I think, helps uh, not only to run that organization more efficiently, but it also helps uh, to ensure that people are, we're getting to the people we need to help the most. Now, you mentioned ethics reform. That has become kind of, a, a, for both parties, something that has been part of campaigns. Before we get to the next clip, what would you want to see in terms of that issue in the next couple of years? Well, I, I think there's some easy low-hanging fruit that I've been talking about in the course of the campaign. One, uh, I'd like to see a ban on uh, personal gifts from special interests and from lobbyists. One of the most corrosive uh, effects, and in fact, before I go any further, I think it's safe to say that the trust level between elected officials and the everyday citizen is probably lower than it's ever been before. There is a tremendous amount of frustration from everyday folks uh, with politicians in Jefferson City, politicians in Washington, D.C. So the first low-hanging fruit we can do is cut off the personal gifts 
that lot that legislators are receiving from these special interests in exchange not necessarily for changing votes but for access access that sometimes the everyday citizen doesn't have so i think that's an easy thing to do and there is a huge difference between a personal gift and a campaign contribution that a lot of times folks don't talk about the difference is personal gifts can be used for any benefit of the of the of a private party a campaign contribution has, has certain requirements in terms of reporting, transparency, and also what those funds can be used for. So there's a big difference. So I think that's an easy one to talk about. I also would like to see an extension of the cooling off period for a lot of times legislators uh, will become lobbyists uh, when they're done serving in office. And I'd like to see an extension of the time period that they must wait before they, beca- they can become uh, lobbyists for a particular special interest. Would you like to see uh, limits on campaign contributions as well? Well, that's a that's a good question. That's a tricky question uh, because a lot of times can't I don't necessarily support outright campaign contributions, and and this is why. One, I think that you are treading very closely to trampling on someone's free speech. If I want to support something, uh, not only with my words but with my own resources, uh, how is the government? Uh, in a position to tell me what I can and cannot do. It's a very, very important question on the role of government. And also, depending on what those contribution contribution limits would be under any scenario, you may actually find that you're actually transferring more power to the special interests that are already writing checks underneath what your proposed caps are. If we didn't have, now in my race, and Jason, you brought this up, Mm -hmm. in my race, we had big donors on both sides. Uh, what I've told folks specifically about how I've raised money, you know, a majority of my donors were folks that live in St. Charles County. They were donating between 25 and $50 because they believed not just in what my message was, but that we could win this campaign. If I didn't have the big donors that were supporting me who agree with me on some of the most important issues facing the state, then in my race and in other races, the only people that would be able to compete for a lot of these positions would either be self-funding millionaires or folks who were incumbents that had already built a bridge to the special interest in Jefferson City. And I think that's necessarily a bad, that's a bad outcome. So when we talk about campaign contribution limits, I think everybody wants to remove the negativity and cynicism and, and, and to an extent the, the influence of money on our politics. The problem is we can't trample on free speech. The problem is we can't inadvertently, with caps, transfer power to those who are already below the proposed caps that we might be talking about. So uh, it's a careful question. No one would like to remove the influence of money uh, out of our politics and have a a campaign focused exclusively on issues more than I would. The question is how you get there. Now, I'm glad Dale brought this up because this is going to this could be an issue in the general election, depending on what the courts decide. There is an initiative petition that was certified for the ballot that would I think twenty six hundred dollars would be the caps for state races, not municipal or county races. And it comes as lawmakers who voted to remove caps, including David Pierce, Jim Lemke, who I know is a big supporter of you, Rob Schaff, and Attorney General Chris Coster have repudiated their votes to remove campaign contribution limits. Now, the Democratic gubernatorial nominee, Coster, did this a couple of days ago. I'm going to play a clip when me asking, why did you decide to do this now as opposed to, you know, a year, two years ago, like those other people did. Here's what he had to say. I have been waiting for uh, Fred's petition to be certified because it seemed like a logical place to talk about the issue. And frankly, I wish it had happened earlier. If it had happened earlier, I would have talked about it earlier. But the the rules uh, regarding this election period are set. And what I'm talking about is uh, joining Governor Nixon's side of the issue and trying to bring some rationality back to the process after this set of elections is done. 
because where we are now is we've reached a point where there are essentially oligarchs trading million-dollar chips back and forth across the table uh, for reasons, quite honestly, that even those in, those of us inside the political system really can't even understand. And it has led to a situation where regular Missourians, even, frankly, even well-to-do Missourians, by, any defi- by anyone's definition, feel increasingly disconnected from the political system. Now, I know there were some Republicans who criticized Coster. They were like, why now? Why after you've taken all this money from labor groups? Why now after you've taken this position for 10 years? But as I mentioned in the outset, he's not alone in, say- in saying this wasn't the right move. How do you kind of how do you kind of respond to that? Well, as far as the motivations of Chris Coster, only he can answer those. So I, I really don't have any really comment from that perspective. Again, I, I can tell you when it comes to campaign contribution limits, we have those at the federal level. And so what we've seen what we've seen at the federal level is uh, we I believe there's been a loss of transparency because the same amount of money is finding its way into our campaigns at the federal level. And the same amount of cynicism and negativity still exist as a result of that money that's going into the federal campaigns. But what's happened at the federal level is that instead of being given money being given to candidates where they can report it and there's transparency, it's funneled into super PACs. Super PACs which don't necessarily have to follow the same rules that candidates have to have. Now in my race, great example, everyone uh, there was a lot of money coming into my race, and the citizen, every individual citizen, had access to see where the money was coming from, how much was money was coming into the race, and where the support for each candidate was coming from. And then they could make up their own mind based on that transparency. I'm very nervous that the inadvertent cost of having campaign contribution limits may be that we actually don't actually get the money out of the system, but we lose transparency. And that's certainly something that no one wants in the first place. So I'll say again, Nobody would like to see getting money out of our political discussion more than I would. And if there's a way to do it, I'd probably be supportive of that initiative. Unfortunately, the things that we've put on to, on the table, and, and in many, many cases, this includes campaign contribution limits, I think it might just hurt transparency, and it wouldn't actually solve the problem that we're talking about. Now, one of the issues that came up in your campaign was the idea of taxation and what would be the best way to do it. I think one of your opponents accused you of, like, all sorts of things about sales tax and being for that because some of your supporters have been like that. What would kind of be your mindset going into the legislature about what the right tax system can be? Because I don't think we're going to have a situation necessarily where there's going to be enough legislative momentum to repeal the income tax and put a sales tax in there. But I know that you had some ideas about that issue that you know, since you're going to be in the majority party, may get some traction. What's kind of your thoughts on that? Well, I, ideally, that would that would be that that would be the case uh, if we could move away from having an income tax in the state of Missouri. And if you look at certain states out there, if you look at Texas, if you look at Tennessee, if you look at Florida, if you look at the states that don't have an income tax, the evidence shows that those states are doing far better than states that have an income tax. When you tax production. When you tax something, people do less of it. People buy less of it. So if you tax production, which in this case is income, people are going to produce less naturally. So we're discouraging folks from earning more. We're discouraging folks from producing more for our state and our economy. And businesses businesses are looking for states that have already passed labor reform. They're also looking for states that have tax reform and are not going to penalize them for being more successful with an income tax. So I think that from a 
That's where we are from an idealistic perspective. From a realistic perspective, I think that we can get rid of the income tax in the state of Missouri. I think, but it can't come all at once. We can't do it in a manner that uh, disrupts the state budget like maybe we saw in some other states. What we can do is I think we can have a reasonable phased out approach where the natural increases in our sales tax, which is increasing year over year, every single year, if we do it right, over the long term, over a horizon of maybe eight to 10 years, I believe this is a possibility. Well, that was going to be my question, because if you look in the St. Louis region, sales tax is already pretty high in some mm-hmm. places, especially in St. Louis County. I, I live in the city, which is also pretty high in some mm-hmm. places. It could be already up to nine or 10 percent, depending on where you are. If you phase out the income tax and you add an increased sales tax from the state, mm-hmm. isn't that going to affect regular working class people more than an income tax. Well, I, I, I wouldn't actually, I would not raise sales taxes beyond what they are now. I would not expand sales taxes to, to include services that they're not included already. Mm-hmm. What I would do is I would go back and using my business background and try to identify some reasonable cuts to the waste in our government. For example, if over the next 10 years, what if we did a lot of at the federal level that they're talking about something called a penny plan, where they cut 1% of their spending every single year. I think that we could institute the same type of policy right here in the state of Missouri where we're going after not cutting services, but cutting waste. And I challenge anybody to tell me that we don't have 1% waste in our government that we couldn't attack every single year. If we did that for 10 years, that would amount to about $2.7 billion. Well, that's half of what we're raising right now in the, in the income tax. At the same time, uh, at the same time, if you phased out the income tax slowly and allowed the existing sales tax revenues, which we already have at current levels, increased in the manner that they're increasing at 4 to 5% every year, you could actually make up the rest of that difference. So it can be done. But here's the thing. We have to challenge our legislature to find more accountability in the dollars that we're already spending. We have to challenge our legislature to go and find those areas of waste, go and find those where areas where we can provide more accountability and do a better job spending the dollars that we're already sending to Jefferson City. If we do that, then I think we can get there. Why would you want to take the waste, the money that uh, that's funding waste, and give it back as opposed to repurposing it? I mean, you've got state state employees whose pay is, is toward the bottom of the nation. You've got... A uh, education funding formula that's a half a billion dollars underfunded, if not more. You've got roads and bridges that are crumbling all over the states. Why shouldn't, if you uh, can identify waste, why not take that money and put it in, in areas that could really need it? Well, because I think if you look at the states that don't have an income tax and, and how well they're doing and the dramatic growth they're seeing in their economies is, is, is something that we can bring to Missouri. I, I, when I first started my campaign, I started it with the message that I wanted to try do whatever I could to make Missouri the most economically competitive place to do business in these United States. I believe that to do that, reforming our tax code is probably the number one thing that we need to address. So you're right. There are other concerns out there that uh, there is no shortage of folks that are, are, are looking for additional funding. But we can help every single household in the state by making Missouri an economic powerhouse that's going to attract businesses, that's going to attract jobs. And when we do that and gain population, because as you know, we, we've lost a congressional seat, we may lose another one in the next census, everybody wins. Now, um, then I want to tr- kind of transition into a subject that Dale is very familiar with, education. Mm-hmm. Um, education is a big deal everywhere, but in the last couple of years, the transfer issue has become especially pertinent to St. Charles County. Dale, can you just kind of remind our listeners um, why that is? Sure. Once the uh, Missouri Supreme Court upheld the transfer law that had been passed in 93 but uh, had really not been used for 20 years, it affected the two uh, unaccredited school districts, Riverview Gardens and Normandy. 
and each of those districts had to identify a district to which they would be paying the transportation for students who transferred out in an effort to seek a better education. And Normandy chose Francis Howell, which I, un I understand is a large part of it is in your district. Correct. So that um, there have been efforts. Uh, there were two laws that were passed by the General Assembly to try to do a so-called transfer fix once people realized what the uh, actual effects of the legislation were. In both cases, they were vetoed by uh, Governor Nixon and the veto uh, s stood. So at, at this point, what what would you like to see in in terms of a, changes in the transfer law and how has it affected, you think, Francis Howell? The thing that I really thought about was the impact that it was having on the students themselves. There is a tremendous amount of travel time and uh, effort that's going into transporting them from uh, St. Louis to St. Charles. And regardless of where they're coming from or going to, when, when these children are spending an hour and a half or two hours on a bus or uh, to get to school and then the same thing in the afternoons, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big wear and tear on them. So I, I think we need to look at that issue very carefully. That being said, everybody wants good schools. Everybody wants good schools, Republican or Democrat alike. The question is, how do we get there? Uh, you're right. I think there are some problems within the funding formula that we need to address so that we can ensure, going back to my same theme, that the dollars are going to where they're needed the most. You know, I have a, I have a sister-in-law who's a teacher at, at Francis Howe. Uh, my children get services through Francis Howe. And so this is something that's uh, very near and dear to my heart. But uh, I'm also a supporter of parental choice. I'm a supporter of parents being able to choose where their kids go and having control over uh, their the educational decisions of their kids. And the more control parents have, the more choice that they have, I, I think that also institutes a, uh, a sense of um, urgency and, and possibly a sense of competition amongst the school systems to provide the right educational environment. Now, here's why I think that matters quite a bit, because one of the reasons the 2014 law was vetoed, because it had a provision in it that allowed people in unaccredited school districts, and by people, I mean children, to transfer to non-sectarian private schools. So this is why I asked both Eric Greitens and Chris Coster their opinion on school choice, because if they had a different one than Jay Nixon, it could mean there could be breakthrough in that issue. I'm going to play back-to-back -back clips from both of them. Here they are now. My line in the sand is that we're going to do whatever is right for kids. And we're actually going to look at results. And what matters at the end of the day is if our kids can read, if our kids can do math, if our kids can spell. We owe those kids a fair shot at the American dream. And I think it's terrible for any politician to take something off of the table for political reasons that might actually help our kids. Public government has the responsibility of making sure that the recipients of, of public money meet a certain standard. And so one of the problems with vouchers uh, is that we lose track of public money. We can't uh, ensure that type of accountability, oversight, and transparency. There's also the constitutional problem of the uh, restriction of public money into religious organizations. So it's not only a question of choice, so if you would like to have choice, would the choice include private and parochial schools? Because whenever I've talked with people who are in charge of those kind of schools and brought up the issue that if they accept public money, they would also have to accept public oversight. I remember talking to the head of John Burroughs schools, and he said, absolutely not. We are an independent school. We would like to operate independently of government. So 
we don't want to accept any government because the oversight would come with it. Would you be willing to uh, say to a public, uh, private or a parochial school, if you take public money, you also have to take public oversight? And I was listening to uh, Chris Coster's answer there, and he said something I think that was very key. He said that, well, if we're going to uh, give money to private schools, then we have to make sure that they're having public oversight, just as which of what you're asking about. And I'm a conservative guy. I actually don't believe uh, very strongly in government's ability to efficiently solve the problems of today. And the more that we rely on government to solve our problems, the worse off we are. We've seen this in healthcare. We've seen problems in education. We've seen problems in taxation. We've seen problems in spending. And I think education can actually be uh, looked at the same way. Uh, do I want to give parents choice? I do want to give parents choice. The more choice they have, the more control they have over their tax dollars, which are going for educational purposes, the better decisions that they can make. If we bring the government into private schools, uh, we're expanding the size and scope and role of government in a place that uh, I'm not sure they're doing a good job right now. And if they were doing a good job, then what happened to those schools over in, in uh, North St. Louis? So looking at government as the answer, looking at government as the one that's going to be the end-all, be-all of providing uh, great schools, great health care, great spending plans. I don't think that's a good way to go. I believe in private markets. The more choice you have, you are going to create competitions. And whereas I think guys like Chris Coster believe that government can enforce great standards and good education, I believe that a parent that has the perspective that one school may be better than another and decides to send his, his or her child to a school that's performing better is a much better system and will make sure that these kids are getting the education they need. But who would be watching to make sure that that public money was spent properly? The parents would. The parents would. And if and if the parents don't feel like uh, any school, whether it's a public school, whether it's a private school, whatever it is, if the parents don't feel like they're doing a good job, if they have the choice to move their children to a different school, that's that's where the power should lie. You know, education, all education comes down to a, a relationship between a teacher and a student. The more you manage that relationship from a further distance away, the worse it is. So the closest relationship you can manage that and control that is by the parent, and that's where the control should be. And, you know, the first part of that clip was the GOP nominee, Eric Greitens, and it was in response to a question about whether you would take a similar line in the stand as Governor Nixon did when he said he would veto anything that he said was voucher-like. You got the, I got the sense from talking to him he would not draw that line in the sand. He would be willing to at least entertain things that maybe Nixon wouldn't have. When you heard that sort of answer, were, were you confident of his ability to, to deal with that issue in a way that you would like? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, there's, there's two trains of thought here when it comes to education. One, the idea that the government is the ultimate authority on what our kids should be learning, the ultimate authority of how they should be taught, and then, and then also, also, also the ultimate authority of where they should go. Uh, I, or there's the train of thought that parents should have that control. The idea that parents should make the decisions about where their children go, what schools they attend, what they should be taught in the school. And, and I'm, I fall down on the issue uh, on the side of the parents. And the more, par the more that parents have control, which may or may not include voucher programs, I'm supportive of that. Don't you think parents have control in the sense that they vote for school boards that put these, uh, put these policies in place for public districts? That, well, they, they do control school boards with their votes, uh, no question. But at the same time, that's different than being able to make a decision of where their child's going to go. You know, based on where they live, that's the government is telling them what school they must go to and, and where their tax dollars are going to be spent, regardless if they actually choose to, to put their child into a private school or not. And so I think it's, 
I think that restoring control to parents, which we've somewhat lost in the effort to uh, create a, a public school system, is, is very important. And the more we can do that, and again, maybe that includes vouchers, maybe it doesn't. But I'm supportive of parents being in control. Now, um, one of the things that is going to definitely affect your ability to legislate is who the governor is. We've, we've talked a lot about Chris Coster, but I know that there are some Republicans who are a little leery about Eric Greitens, maybe because they supported one of the other three. Um, but he's a first-time candidate like you're a first-time candidate, and there are a lot of people who are conversely excited about him. So I know that you probably didn't get involved in the gubernatorial race because you were involved in your own race, but there is a decent chance he could become governor and will affect your life as a legislator. What's kind of your thoughts on him as a candidate and as a possible governor? Well, I've met Eric several times, and I've come to know him. He, he's a military veteran like me. He's a small business owner like me. And like most all Republicans and Democrats for that for that matter, he, he wants what's best for the state. He's coming in as an outsider. He's coming in as somebody who's never run for office before. And his interest is is to shake up the current system and to shake up the um, whether it's the, the legislature, whether it's to, to shake up the special interest. That's what he's focused on. And I think that uh, with people being as dissatisfied with the way things are in government as they are today, with the trust level being as low as, they, they, as it is today, I, I think that's a message that resonates. And I can tell you that uh, I'll be voting for Eric in November. If you took Greitens' name out of that sentence and put Donald Trump's name in the same sentence, uh, it, it, it would be true in terms of what his aims are, what his background is, except for the military. Do you feel the same way about the top of the Republican ticket? Of course. Uh, I, I, I get this question a lot, as you can imagine. Uh, I think every I Republican <laughs> candidate is getting that. I get this question a lot of who I would support for it. And, and I start out, when I think of, of the presidential race, um, you know, Donald Trump wasn't my first choice. Uh, and I'll be honest that he, he wasn't my second choice either. Who were your first and second choice? Uh, I was, uh, my first choice was Ted Cruz, and my second choice was uh, Marco Rubio. Although I, I have a, a special affinity for Scott Walker too, although he left the race uh, very early. Now, that being said, we cannot in any way, shape, or form have Hillary Clinton as the president of the United States. If we do, that will continue the policies that have reduced our standing in the world, that will continue the policies that have reduced our ability to recover from our economic recession, it will essentially be a Barack Obama third term. We can't have that. So uh, for me, I'm voting for Donald Trump in November. Yeah. And, and, and enthusiastically? Uh, it's ab absolutely. <laughs> I know. <laughs> See, I know that uh, this is, a, again, this is a question lots of folks are asking me. And uh, I, I am an enthusiastic supporter of our nominee. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would tell you, he is tapping in. Donald Trump is tapping in to the same energy of frustration and anger that people are feeling about the system that is in place right now. He, he is running on a message of he's an outsider. He wants to shake up the status quo. And that is resonating with so many people. And if that message, if that feeling wasn't present, I don't think that I would be sitting here today either. Now, it's interesting that this question gets brought up in Missouri because Democrats are using that question to attack Republicans because they feel like Donald Trump says so many crazy things that it's easy to use him as a bludgeon. I think the, the thing about it, using that in Missouri is there's no guarantee that Hillary Clinton is going to be competitive here or even make it close. So basically, it's a message saying, depending on what the outcome is, do you stand with the person that the majority of Missourians are going to vote in as their president? And that attack becomes less and less effective if the answer is, you know, Missouri 
votes for him by a lot, it becomes more effective if it's a closer race. What's kind of your take on that? Well, I think that a lot of times the question are asked, by, and I'm not saying by Dale, but just the questions are asked in general by the other side as a way to, one, divide, try to divide Republicans, and two, also to uh, take, the, take the attention off their own nominee. You know, Hillary Clinton is someone that, uh, to use a phrase that I heard in the campaign, has a tenuous relationship with the truth. Um, she has been shown that uh, she has trouble managing her own private. I'll tell you what, when it comes to the uh, the email scandal that, that we've been focused on for the past few months, I can tell you when I was assigned to Whiteman Air Force Base as a military officer, if I had done the things that Hillary Clinton did, I would be in jail today. Uh, we have top secret information out there at Whiteman Air Force Base for the B-2 Stealth. And if I had done what Hillary Clinton had done, has done, I would be in jail today. So I think that there is a great interest on, on the Democratic side to try to take attention away from their nominee. Now, I also think that this is probably going to be, unfortunately, uh, one of the more negative campaigns, presidential campaigns we've seen in our history. And that's frustrating for me as a new guy. Uh, we saw that in my own race. Uh, I've been looking forward, you know, the end of the primary season uh, is good because I feel like this is an opportunity to turn the discussion back to issues, turn the discussion back to how do we move forward from here. And I think the undercurrent of frustration is going to continue to be there in the general election. And it's going to be it's going to continue to be there next year when all of us that are railing against the establishment are trying to lead. And I think we'll leave it at that. We're looking forward to seeing what happens in this crazy election season. And if you do win your race, you do have a Democratic opponent. So I don't want to say you are automatically going to the Senate. But as I said in the beginning, this is a Republican district. I think you will be favored. We'll have you back when you're actually legislating. Mm -hmm. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Dale on Twitter at? Dale Singer. And how would we follow you on Twitter? Uh, uh, at Bill Eigel. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. And by the way, I'm the only person that responds on my Facebook page. So if you have any questions, anybody can, be, can find me there. Find them all over social media, and he will respond to your every question. We will be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>